really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more, all about the world of rugby union. I am your host, David Lawrence. I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe. If you'd like to get in touch, well, I would love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter at of Scrum. I'm on Instagram at the Scrum of the Earth podcast, and you can always drop me an email at the Scrum of the Earth at gmail.com. So, it's been some time since I outlined our weekly segments, so just a quick refresher here. We always start off with current updates, which is just sort of whatever's happening in my own life. Then we do a bit of news, ordinarily just sort of one standout item, though I'm considering expanding that, to be honest. So uh, after that, it's thoughts of the week, which I feel is pretty self-explanatory. And then we get to the meat of the show, which is the reviews of that week's action, or at least as much as I managed to follow. This is a followed, of course, by our weekly award, really just sort of our player of the week, but we call it our diamond in the ruck. After the accolades go out, we move on to updates and previews where we look ahead to the next week and sometimes provide, you know, table updates or scheduling updates, anything that seems worth highlighting before we sign off. And then we have our brief little outro to wrap things up for another week. The weekly show is always dedicated primarily to reviewing the matches that took place, but we also do sort of a, a ton of bonus episodes here, which are in large part, you know, interviews with cool and interesting people from all around the world. If you care to look back, you'll see we've had a ton of great guests in our inaugural inaugural season. I can never say that word right in the first, first time. Uh, I very much hope that continues this year as well. Anyway, in the meantime, we did have a ton of rugby to watch this weekend, so let's get on with the show. So, current updates. Well, you know what? In my own world, my partner and I have been working at a cool little summer camp in the area, which has been kind of fun, but mostly it allows us to send our son there for free. The camp is massively expensive, so it's not something we'd be able to do for him, you know, without at least one of us working there. We're hoping that becomes, you know, something he gets to do over several years. Uh, if you're a regular listener at all, you'll know that my son just started playing baseball this last school year, and now he's just, he's becoming the most active kid I know. Like, there, there's a game they play at camp called Gaga Ball, which I would describe most simply as sort of dodgeball below the waist, and he's obsessed with it. On top of that, he swims every single day, and according to reports, is progressing really well. As I've said many times, whatever he wants to pursue, we plan to support him. But naturally, there are things we we're hoping he will want to do. And swimming is definitely one of them. Uh, but, you know, and I, I can't believe how excited this made me. He played soccer for one of the first times ever. And they put him in goal. And from all accounts, his team was up by one, uh, sort of getting late on in a match. My boy jumped as high as he could to snatch a ball out of the air and save a huge goal, allowing his team to hold on for a win. And all the kids in this little group have been talking about it. I'm devastated. I don't have a video of this alleged event, but, you know, the very idea of it just causes my heart to overflow. Just so cool for the little guy. I simply could not be prouder. I'm under the impression that soccer, for some reason, is actually a, a fairly popular game around the world. Who would have thunk it? Uh, so I guess we, we might have to consider getting him like a, a really douchey haircut in the next uh, couple months or something like that. He's stupid! He's stupid! People have to know! 
Whew, no, it is not good news, Isa, at least if you're an All Blacks fan. With the team continuing to be held under a withering microscope from people all over the globe who clearly relish the notion of their falling from their own lofty heights. In an article I found titled, Blacks Went from Rugby's Kings to a Punching Bag, link is always in the show notes, I read... Ian Foster, if you read between the lines, has the opening two matches of the rugby championship against the Springboks to turn the All Blacks around. If he lost both, it would be really hard, really difficult to keep his job. Wilson's comments come after two of Foster's assistants, John John Plumtree and Brad Moore, uh, were sacrificed following an intense six days of silence. Following their series loss to Ireland last month, their first home series loss in 27 years and their fourth defeat in five matches. The great all blackout, which only intensified the scrutiny surrounding New Zealand's rugby's uh, stuttering leadership, saw its main spokesman protected under the rights of being a human as all blacks media manager Joe Malcolm decided to cancel Foster's end of series debrief. Quote, I felt he, Foster, needed a day or two uh, to work out what he wanted to say and not just be a punching bag for the media who, let's be clear, wanted blood, Malcolm wrote on LinkedIn. On LinkedIn, wow. Since then, calls for sweeping changes have only intensified with Steve Hansen leading the chorus of outrage, slamming the NZR board for abandoning the players while backing Foster to turn the ship around. Should the All Blacks fail to win a test over the Springboks, many players will struggle to hold their positions beyond the rugby championship. The question many have is, how did the kings of rugby suddenly become a punching bag with the NZR CEO, coach, and captain all under the gun? You know, this stuff, it goes on and on. It really piles on, to be honest. It really feels like the entire world just wants to pour dirt on the Kiwis. You know, dark days in the Aotearoa, the knives are well and truly out. You know, how that's going to play out in South Africa, I guess we're about to find out. Okay, for probably the last week, I'm going to use my thoughts of the week to share another great anecdote from Rugby's Strangest Matches, a book which I have listed another way to buy in the show notes, of course. So many podcasts and, you know, YouTube channels just often just say sort of, you can get it on Amazon. Of course, of course you can, but I'm trying to avoid, you know, pointing people in that specific direction. In any event, this is a chapter called And There Was Light. In the late 1870s, bids were mounted by the fledgling electric light companies to overturn the monopoly the gas companies held over urban street lighting. As Thomas Edison in the United States and Sir Joseph Swan in Britain perfected the design of the incandescent light bulb, less inspired experimenters were already using more primitive forms of electrical lighting. Sport was an interested beneficiary of this new form of lighting with both football and rugby pioneering floodlit events in the winter of uh, 1878 to 79. The first recorded rugby match under floodlights took place in the industrial north uh, on October 22nd of 1878. Two Graham's lights suspended from 30 foot poles were used for illumination. Another match was staged in the Liverpool area in the same month. And the craze for illuminated matches spread like wildfire as the electric companies sought to promote their methods. An interesting additional development in November was the use of a white ball for a match staged at Old Deer Park involving Surrey and Middlesex. Surrey won a match enlightened by four lamps driven by a couple of Siemens electrodynamic machines. Three months later, on 24 February 1879, the first floodlit game in Scotland took place at Howick. Their local derby with Melrose, whom they defeated by a goal to nil, attracted a healthy crowd of 5,000 and a gate of 63 pounds. It would have been much greater, but for the fact that only one gate man was on duty and many poured through a hole in a perimeter fence without paying. 
The power for the light came from two dynamos driven by steam engines, but the crowd had a shock when the parsimonious officials switched the power off immediately after the match finished. Heavy snow had covered the pitch and surrounds, and there was chaos as spectators skidded their way home in complete darkness. Floodlit rugby for gate money was actually prohibited by the Rugby Football Union, quote, as not in the interests of the game, unquote, in 1933. By the 1950s, however, Harlequins and Cardiff were staging a popular sequence of annual evening matches at the White City before the Quins set up home at the Stoop. And there was a successful floodlit alliance series involving the major Welsh clubs in the 1960s. Nowadays, major internationals in the Southern Hemisphere are frequently staged at night. And the official world record for attendance for a rugby union match was set when Australia played the All Blacks under the lights of the Olympic Stadium, Sydney, in July 2000. A crowd of 109,874 turned out to see the New Zealanders win a pulsating match, 39 to 35. Great little story. So moving on to our reviews. And well, this weekend, of course, saw the start of the boringly named rugby championship with the reeling All Blacks facing the World Cup winning Springboks in South Africa, followed by Argentina hosting Wallabies uh, in Buenos Aires. So starting off in South Africa, the Springboks looked absolutely pumped and the crowd, you know, they decided they would simply drown out the Haka, which seemed to bode poorly for the visitors. In a frightening moment, just 45 seconds in, Fafta Clerk, he took an accidental knee to the head and was as knocked out as I've ever seen anyone. Uh, he would later reappear from the locker room to smile and wave, which is really gratifying to see and also just, you know, brought the crowd to complete lather with their team dominating the first quarter. The box put a ton of pressure on the Kiwis by constantly forcing lineouts deep in their own territory. And New Zealand, they looked stymied, frankly. They, they just couldn't get any momentum. Uh, quote, it's been a systematic dismantling, unquote, drilled the comms as this one came to an end. The hosts getting a rub it in try right at the end to make it 26 to 10. And even when it was close, it never looked close. I'm pretty sure this sees the Kiwis dropping to fifth in the world, which I think is a record, but I'm going to have to verify that one. Wow, this, this is a serious skid. They just, they couldn't do anything right. It was incredible. And, you know, it just wasn't pretty at all. I was glad to see Caleb Clark back out there. He played well. Other than that, just precious few positive takeaways if you're a New Zealand fan. Regular listeners will know I'm a big fan of the All Blacks. And while seeing them struggle seems to bring the whole world lots of joy, it's definitely the opposite for me. I'm, I'm very concerned about where they are right now. Uh, there seems to be no plan at all in attack. I just don't know how they can right the ship leading into the uh, Rugby World Cup in France. Things just look really negative at the moment. And the article I just read about, oh, geez, you know, Ian Foster can't keep his job if he loses these two matches. What are they going to do then? Like, it, we're, you know, it's way too close to the next World Cup. I just don't know what's going to happen with this. It just looks really bad right now. So then, flying over to Argentina. Australia, they, they looked a bit out of sorts, much, much like Scotland did recently. But nevertheless, it was a tight one with momentum sort of swinging back and forth all day long. Frustration started to show in the faces of the Wallabies as the first half wound down. Los Pumas uh, were leading 16 to 10 at that point. By the way, in my absolute crowning achievement as a dad, my son can now do that like mustache twirling motion while saying, hello, I'm Nick White. I play for the Wallabies. So uh, I think my work here on Earth is done. <laughs> Another side note, um, it was like the comms were 
we're all by that uh you know that most interesting guy in the world guy like the dosekis guy just so low pitched and downbeat it it honestly made it harder to stay engaged it was like a velvet sleeping pill uh yet another side note it was especially noticeable in the wide shots the the so-called gold of the wallabies jersey it has progressed well into orange territory at this point it's a little weird anywho after another successful Buffelli kick, it was 19 to 10 at the break. So starting the second half, a telling stat was the 10 penalties conceded to three in favor of Argentina. And the Aussies would need a, to find a spark if they wanted to come away with any joy on this day. On top of it all, the sight of Quade Cooper's reaction as he twisted his ankle. I mean, oy vey, it was immediately apparent it was a bad injury. The guy has really gotten himself back into top form. Very tough to see him go down with what looks like a very big deal. And I have to say, you know, this may be the first time I've ever thought to myself, maybe Argentina come in second this time in the rugby championship. I'm not even kidding right now. New Zealand are in shambles. Argentina are way past where we thought they were. Australia, you know, they're a caravan of walking wounded. There may be some history to be made this late summer, but maybe not. Argentina, they seem to lose a bit of momentum. The Aussies slowly claw their way back into things. The lead was down to two with a good 25 minutes left. Naturally, just as I wrote that, disgraced quasi-human Pablo Matera again showed how damn good he is at rugby, facilitating a try that put Los Pumas back up by nine after Buffelli nailed the extras. By the way, I wrote that before he kicked it, and yeah, it was automatic. What a player. So a penalty try for Australia brought them again within two. Reese Hodge reclaimed the league shortly thereafter, and boy, oh boy, had the penalty count flip-flop the Aussies staying at 10 while their hosts went past them to 13. Just terrible discipline in a match they really looked to have in the bag. The whistles and hoots started raining down from the crowd, but it was their team that was the issue, not the ref. And then, my guy, frequently mentioned in this space, Falau Fainga, he smashed another one in. He is a goddamn machine. He, he throws it in perfectly, comes in and gets it to the back of the ball, powers in, picks the perfect time, zip, he's in like, like I, I don't know, a viper, like his quickness, just so good. I've many times on this very pod asked why he was out of favor with the Wallabies for quite some time. I still haven't heard anything from any listeners, you know, but apparently they're finally smart enough to get him back in there. He started and is still in after a scoring try with under 10 minutes to go. When Buffelli finally missed with just under five minutes left, down eight, it was over. The comms kind of went batty at the end. They, they showed a replay of a forward pass, announced that obviously it was a forward pass and no try, and then flashed back to the action where the try had in fact been scored with the conversion good as well. And that made the score look very different. You'd have to say it was 26 to 41. That was a score after a bit of an odd ending there. And I really don't know what was going on with the comms. It got a little surreal. So of course it was also round four of the Farrah Palmer cup where there was some fantastic rugby played counties, Monaco hosting Canterbury. This one had fireworks with my counties Monaco team going up 21 to 10 several minutes into the second half but Canterbury are no joke the lead was down to four with 35 minutes to play and if you believe in momentum Canterbury seemed to have all of it at that point almost immediately as I wrote that Canterbury scored again took their first lead of the match when counties answered right back I realized I was watching just an awesome match it just got so so good just an absolute seesaw match with so many hard tackles Sadly for me and my newly adopted team, 
Canterbury did prevail 31 to 36 at Counties Monaco. Auckland were next. They were at home for Manawatu. They pushed their guests around to the tune of a 32 to five win. And it looked like they could have done even more if they'd kept the pedal mashed down. Waikato, they welcomed Bay of Plenty in a battle of the undefeated. And Waikato really made a statement coming out victors 17 to 10. This is the type of match where you find out you can dig deep. I foresee very good things for this team. So Northland, they welcomed Hawks Bay. The visitors subsequently vanquished them, almost doubling up their hosts, 17 to 32. Then it was Taranaki versus Otago. The home team just, they kind of seemed overmatched, but to be fair, they were playing super hard defense very late in the game, despite, you know, just b- being more than doubled up at 15 to 31 with only 25 minutes left. I tweeted a clip of the amazing venue for this contest. It was like, I don't know, a farmer's version of a Greek amphitheater, just a gorgeous natural design. But, you know, match-wise, things kind of snowballed. A breakaway try converted saw the visitors up 15 to 55 at that point. And despite, I have to say, some spirited defense by Taranaki right down to the last very second, that's how this one would end 15 to 55. A bit of a spanking. So, Tasman, they were at home for North Harbor, and they were not messing around, smashing Harbor to the tune of 25 to 5 just at halftime. Things remained largely the same in the second half. Side note, one of the beautiful things about watching FBC matches is the grounds they find to play. So often you, you see matches where there are, you know, several adjacent rugby pitches all around. In this case, there were a couple of fields intermixed with some paddocks patrolled by dozens of sheep. So good. Got, just got to love it. In any event, Tasman's 18-year-old replacement winger, she was absolutely awesome. Just looked like she was playing in a different game than most of the people around her. I feel sure we're going to hear the name Solomona quite a bit in the next few years. To be fair, North Harbor appeared completely out of gas in the closing moments. Tasman's attack looked like they were playing with a four-player advantage at almost every opportunity. By the end, it was a 42-15 to butt-whooping, seven tries to two. Tasman, they look very strong at this stage of the competition. Well, as I've been eagerly awaiting, this weekend also featured the return of the NPC, a competition I might like even more than Super Rugby. Well, maybe. This year, we started things off with a bang with Manawatu versus Canterbury. The first thing I noticed was recent Free Jack Slade McDowell starting at seven from Manawatu. God, I miss that man already. You know, it was odd because there he is back in New Zealand where rugby is interwoven into everyday life and the crowd it's just a tiny smattering of people compared to back here at Fort Quincy. The lack of noise must have been shocking for him. In any event, the first half, the highlight had to be Fergus Burke. Great name, by the way. His eye-popping solo try along the sideline, absolutely schooling one of the uh, Canterbury wingers along the way. Just an amazing individual effort. Please check it out if you can. It was right about 12 or 12 and a half minutes in. In any case, Canterbury, they were completely dominant in the first half, scoring four tries to zero while the home team were their own worst enemy, losing, I'm not kidding, all nine of their lineouts. I mean, nobody could win like that. What a mess. Uh, three to 29 was the halftime score. And as the comms said, the night was a masterclass from Canterbury. A try from Manawatu right after full time sounded uh, meant your final score was a blistering 15 to 62. Ouch. Yikes. So uh, next up, Counties Manukau were playing Otago, and holy cow, what a barn burner. This is why I love this league. For whatever reason, the footage didn't actually begin on my so-called streaming service. 
uh, until about minute 45 when it was tied at 10. But before I even thought about, you know, complaining about it here, I was completely sucked in. It was such a great contest. As time wore on, Otago, the gained ascendancy, looked well on their way, but the Alt.Free Jacks kept fighting, scored a try to get within four, converted it despite the worst possible angle to get within two. Then moments after I said to my screen, they aren't really setting up for a drop goal by the looks of things, they snapped into position and converted a beauty, winning 23-22 with the clock in the red. So good for my Alt.Free Jacks. Next up, of course, was Waikato. They were facing Hawks Bay. It was cool to see a little, uh, a nice little Damien McKenzie sighting, apparently filling the boots left vacant by Bodine Waka. Though to be fair, you know, when Damien plays at 10, it often seems like he forgets he's not playing 15. It's a bit odd. In any event, Waikato, they didn't seem to know how to get things going. They found themselves down 10 in as many minutes to, just to start, but quickly figured it out. Things were level after the first quarter of play. The home side took their first lead as the clock wound towards halftime. And by the way, if you didn't believe me about the play from anywhere attitude in the NPC, the first box kick didn't come until the 39 minute mark. Uh, 24 to 20 was the score headed into the sheds. This one, oh man, it couldn't have been closer with things knotted at 32 headed into the final minutes. It appeared would be headed for the golden point as they call it. Waikato, they got a penalty off a scrum, giving McKenzie a shot from 46 meters out, but he muffed it. He had another closer shot in extra time, but couldn't slot that one either. It just wasn't his day. With a minute to go, he had a couple of great shots at drop goals to win it. Missed both of them. Hawks Bay were happy to kick it out for the draw at the end. A bit of a whimper ending there, rather than a bang. So, Auckland versus North Harbor. This one promised fireworks with three tries in the opening 12 minutes, one of which was a penalty try for North Harbor. At the first quarter, uh, after the first quarter, Harbor held a, uh, a 10 to 21 edge, despite having only 28% of the territory, according to the comms. Speaking of the comms, at scrum time, they kept referring to one of the Auckland wingers as the danger man, which is a term, you know, very few people have used in reference to me. I wonder if I can change that somehow. Anyway, another random side note. I keep talking about the lack of kicking in the NPC. I just wanted to clear something up because several people have reached out to me to ask about it. So the the whole like three phases, then kick it style of attack, I tend to think of as the sort of Eddie Jones style, though it's ironically perhaps employed even more by South Africa and South African heavy teams like the Sail Sharks. Uh, you know, it don't get me wrong. It makes perfect sense to me and has over the last several years been hugely effective. I'm not against it like if my team was in a crucial test against a hated rival you better believe i'd be behind i'd be behind whatever tactics get us a win in those circumstances six nations you know rugby championship world cup what have you in those cases win by any means necessary i don't care whether it's pretty or not but on the other hand i love rugby and i love watching rugby and sometimes it's really nice to watch a competition who are, act like screw it we're here to play rugby. That's exactly what we're going to do. Would some teams in the NPC and even in Super Rugby maybe do better and potentially find more success by adding that sort of tactical kicking element? Almost certainly. But the fact that they're happy to just play footy and see where the chips fall, well, I absolutely love it. Anywho, as Mark Talea scored for Harbor, the comms exclaimed, they're getting the band back together, which cracked me up incredibly. <laughs> Soon after that, 
It was a penalty try, penalty try number two on the match. This one in Auckland's favor. The home side were back within three with a player advantage. Only seconds later, uh, later, the owner of one of my favorite all-time names, Zarn Sullivan, he busted through for an incredible individual try with the comms shouting, they need to throw some water on him because he's on fire. Oh my gosh, comms. Keep it coming, guys. I'm loving it. Anyway, just after that, like a lightning strike, they rolled their uh, their way right back in just within moments. Suddenly, Auckland held a 10-point lead heading into the final quarter of play. North Harbor couldn't buy a bucket, as they say in basketball. The 10-point margin was how things would end. Auckland really taking control in the second half. Got to say, number three for Harbor. He's clearly a very good player, and he went the full 80, so he's got, you know, fitness and commitment, but he... To me, he had no sense of urgency or like where his team is in the game at a given moment. I, I have serious concerns about their team if they're going to be relying on him going forward. So Tasman versus Southland, the legend that is Marty Banks scored the first points of the night for the Stags, but the league the lead was short-lived. Tasman slowly resting control firmly away from their guests, leading 27 to 17 with a half hour to go. Kicking it out rather than going for the bonus point. Tasman will win by seven. The Southland players exhausted, strewn about the pitch. Just a very tight one indeed. Everyone was absolutely cashed at the end. Then, of course, Taranaki versus Northland. Wow. Was scoring ever at a premium in this one. Just, you know, a nail-biting one the, the, whole, uh, the whole way. Seemingly against all the odds with only four minutes left. Northland, they smashed through a try to draw things level at a mere 11 points each, and the gutsy conversion from way out to the side got them their first lead right at the end. Jesse Peretti, by the way, another fantastic reject, was tearing up trees for Taranaki, but it was he who gave up the critical penalty with under minutes to play, giving the ball back to Northland, who were happy to put this one to bed after such a protracted effort. You know, looking for redemption, clock on red, Peretti made a great offload but his teammate simply bobbled it. And, you know, it looked like it looked like the end of that stage. But then, oh my gosh, a quick turnaround of events saw the home team getting one more shot at a penalty kick. An easy one that they shanked. That's right. Unbelievably, they missed a gimme for the win. Dropped their opener at home 11 to 13 to a surprising Northland team. By the way, another absolutely gorgeous sort of farm-style stadium. I can't get enough of these venues. Finally, of course, for this weekend, the MPC, it was Wellington versus Bay of Plenty. And you know what? I don't know what happened because I haven't seen it yet because I am saving it. So no spoilers from you people, if you please. Okay, and the Super 6 Championship this weekend was, of course, also the first round of the Scottish Super 6 and its latest iteration, the Super 6 Championship. Uh, I reached out to friends of the pod, John and Craig, to find out, you know, what's the deal with that? And they essentially said, yeah, the Super 6 is kind of weird. So <laughs> I guess we all agree. In any event, I did not have time to catch this round, but I'm happy to report the results, at least. On Friday, the Ayrshire Bulls, they hosted Harriet's Rugby and smacked them around fairly soundly, winning at home 33-17. to On Saturday, the newly branded Sterling Wolves were home to face the Bormier Bears, who promised to let me know how I could get some of their merch, maybe like nine months ago. I'm still waiting, y'all. 
Anyway, uh, Sterling went down 10 to 27, a promising start for my Bears. Also, I kind of like Sterling's new branding, but I can't help but be reminded of that, uh, like the spirit fox that Homer hallucinates on The Simpsons. Maybe that's intentional. I don't know. Anyway, finally, the hapless Southern Knights were against the Watsonians, and they got tripled up 12 to 36. I'm hoping to actually watch some of this league this time around, but as things stand, as the Magic 8-Ball might say, outlook not good. By the way, as I mentioned before, Scotland Rugby do a great job of making all these matches accessible, both live and after the fact, and they don't generally give away the results while you're searching for them, which is very, very nice. So I've tried to add some links I use in the show notes naturally. Um, I have a lot of love for this competition. The, the last two iterations, I haven't really managed to catch a whole lot, but if you have time, I cannot recommend it enough. Well, by that music, you'll know it's time for this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award. And this week, we're giving the accolades to the one, the only, Zarn Sullivan. Mr. Sullivan, despite your last name being from any Boston suburb, while your first name is clearly from outer space, you were the spark that lit the fuse for your Auckland side and their come-from-behind victory over North Harbor. By only the 65th minute, you'd scored a try and gained over 110 meters, 16 of which were post-contact. Your immaculate fielding of highballs provided a reliable point of attack for your team. Your work on the defensive end could be described as heroic. Zarn Sullivan, fullback and all-around leader for the Auckland rugby side, congratulations. You are this week's Diamond in the Ruck. Enjoy. Well done. Okay, that brings us to our updates and previews. Somehow, we have a rare Wednesday fixture this week. Oh, I love those. This one is Manawatu versus Auckland. And by the way, I uh, last week I was saying, why are they doing that? There haven't been anything canceled or anything yet. Um, I have learned the reasoning. It's, it's because they're trying to fit this competition into a certain window. So every team has uh, basically one week where they play twice in that week. So the Saturday and the, and the Wednesday. So it'll be everybody's turn at some point. And this opening weekend, Manawatu and Auckland get it. I really wonder how that's going to affect their side, uh, you know, squad selection. We will find out and I will be watching. Anyway, meanwhile, continuing the boringly named rugby championship, we'll have a geographical quasi repeat of this week with New Zealand playing the Republic of South Africa in Johannesburg and Los Pumas welcoming Australia to San Juan. Also, lest I forget, you know, to the best of my knowledge, none of these matches are actually going to be available to me, but I thought it was worth mentioning. The Springbok women will be taking on Spain on August 12th, as well as on the following Thursday, August 18th. And of course, on Saturday the 20th, the Japanese women will host Ireland. As always, if you are a listener and you know where I might be able to see any of these matches besides YouTube, I implore you to reach out. I'd very much appreciate that. Meanwhile, oh my word, so much other rugby. The FPC carries on with Otago facing Tasman, Manawatu facing Wellington, Hawks Bay versus Taranaki, uh, and in a titular battle for the North, it's Northland versus North Harbor, then Canterbury versus Waikato, Bay of Plenty versus Counties Monaco. Currently, it's also, uh, concurrently rather, it's also going to be round two of the NPC, bringing us Hawks Bay versus Counties Monaco, Otago versus Tasman, Northland versus Waikato, Canterbury versus Wellington, Southland versus Auckland, Bay of Plenty versus Taranaki, and finally, 
North Harbor versus Manawatu. And then, yes, like I said, we'll also get yet another lovely little surprise match Wednesday the 17th, giving us Otago versus Hawks Bay. Can't wait. What a great comp. Well, my friends, that does it for another week. We've gone from having precious little rugby to cover to an overwhelming amount. But you know what? That is always good news for me. So, as always, thanks again to all of you for coming along, to all of you across the globe. Cheers. Talk to you soon. And be well.